Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Welcome everyone. I'm Vicki Vasilika, Director of the Clinical Specialist and Scientist section here at ASHP. And thanks for tuning in for this COVID-19 special edition episode. As we all know, COVID-19 has presented many clinical, operational, and educational challenges in the past year. With that in mind, ASHP is sharing insights and lessons learned presented by your peers from the 2020 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting so that you can incorporate these best practices into your own as we all do our part in caring for our patients. Thank you, Colonel Heath, for that introduction. Again, my name is Commander Leo Zadecki of the United States Public Health Service and FDA Drug Shortage Staff. I will be taking the first part of today's lecture uh, to talk to you about the FDA Drug Shortage Program and what specifically is being done during the COVID-19 pandemic to ensure product supply. I wanted to take just a moment at the beginning of the presentation to talk about federal pharmacists. And you'll see shortly that the drug shortage program is heavily dependent upon dialogue and conversation and really collaboration. And that just made me think a lot about the things that I see that are common to all pharmacists, uh, federal pharmacists. We are committed to duty. We have a sense of purpose. We are constantly pushing the profession to the, uh, meet the needs of our patient population and the locations where we are serving. And we are collaborative and we are really, quite frankly, never giving up um, in our efforts to address the needs of our unit and our patients. Okay, so just a couple learning objectives for the next hour. Uh, we're going to discuss the myriad of legal and regulatory changes that have occurred secondary to the pandemic, and really what is FDA doing to react to shortages that have occurred during the pandemic. Then we're going to identify changes that have occurred in pharmaceutical supply distribution systems. And what is COVID doing to supply and demand here? In the second part of the conversation, Dr. Orth is going to discuss and describe changes and opportunities that the rapid movement towards telehealth are presenting for expanding clinical pharmacy practice. Let's start this conversation with a little pretest and just a couple true or false questions for you to really test your understanding of what the FDA can and cannot do in these spaces. So true or false, medical necessity of a drug product is determined by the applicant or manufacturer of the drug product. True or false, the FDA can direct a manufacturer to make volumes necessary to sustain a market need. And finally, True or false, the FDA can direct industry where to distribute products. If the answer that you came up with for these questions was false, then you were correct. The FDA, as you will see, determines medical necessity. The FDA cannot direct manufacturers to make volumes necessary to sustain market need. And the FDA does not have legal purview to direct industry where to distribute products. So we'll go through that in the next few slots. The FDA Drug Shortage Staff is the program office inside of the FDA's Center for Drug Evaluation and Research that is designated to oversee and facilitate resolution of drug shortage situations and really 
the goal is to get into a preventative mode and less than a reactive mode. And we are always looking to really the, what I call the third pillar. Safety and efficacy has been the FDA's mandate for decades now. And, and really, if a product is not available, then that is also a critical problem. And so the agency 20 years ago built this drug shortage program and started staffing these billets to really facilitate dialogue with industry, gather information to be able to make decisions quickly and be nimble, and really to distribute information to clinicians and patient populations and pharmacists so that they can make decisions on care and, and hopefully positively affect clinical outcomes. The goal is really to maintain product availability uh, and minimize risk to patients. So I mentioned earlier that collaboration was critical to the drug shortage staff. And, and what you'll see here is just how much we're doing in terms of discussion and, and back and forth with critical parties, not only with inside the FDA and our various offices here in, in Washington, D.C. Or, or around the globe, but also uh, starting on the left, this dialogue with pharmacists and patients and clinicians and researchers, getting information about what is available or what they're hearing from distributors about, hey, I can't get said product for said period of time. Many times this outreach from you, a pharmacist or a clinician, reaching out to us and saying, what is going on? I can't get this product. That is the first time we hear about a shortage. So we are very dependent upon that dialogue. We have a great relationship with international regulatory organizations and uh, at least quarterly phone calls, although I will tell you during COVID, it has been monthly or even uh, every other week at some points. We have had uh, conversations with U.S. agencies on the shortage mission for many years. During COVID, that has really expanded and been quite more, uh, more frequent. In terms of dialogue with the manufacturers here on the bottom right, that is uh, critical to our program and during the COVID timeframe has really also increased. So everything here is being done normally, but during COVID has really taken uh, a step towards more frequency. So here we have a nice pictorial of a drug supply chain. On our left, raw material suppliers, uh, and on our right, patient healthcare providers, and, and really showing where we gather information in this process. And on the left, we can see manufacturers used to be able to just provide this voluntarily, but it's now required by law, and we'll go into that in a little bit. Wholesalers in the middle um, don't have to legally provide us with information. And periodically, we'll have some discussions, but it's less frequent. Pharmacy and hospitals, certainly we appreciate the emails and the outreach from uh, these parties. However, we also watch sales data and we have access to sales data. It's, it's uh, retrospective, but it gives us an understanding of what's going on month to month and year to year. And we acquire that sales data. We also are, as I mentioned earlier, uh, getting notifications through our email box and email account. And that is uh, uh, really probably more than 50% of the total notifications we receive. I just mentioned that the manufacturers have to talk to the FDA when they make a decision to discontinue product or they are going to have a supply chain disruption. And so there's a lot squeezed into this slide, but a couple quick take-home points. This requirement uh, is for industry to talk to us when they are going to make a discontinuation uh, for a product at least six months in advance. And we post that to our discontinuation tab on our website. 
Um, but also in situations when they uh, have a supply disruption secondary to maybe a product quality issue or some changes that they're going to make or maybe a, a challenge in production and manufacturing facility goes down, they have to reach out to us no later than five days after these interruptions. And uh, they can meet this requirement by emailing the drug shortage staff. We also have a, a portal that permits them to send us a document and then receive a confirmation uh, in response. Uh, we recently published an FDA guidance for industry secondary to uh, notifying the agency. This was for COVID purposes, um, and, and we posted that in March of this year. It's on the COVID website, the FDA's COVID website. It's also on our, our website, which we'll get to in a little bit. Um, this, this notification and the importance of the early notification nuance, we're going to go into a little bit deeper now. Okay, the drug shortage definition here um, provided for you. Uh, the period of time when the demand for a product or the projected demand for the product uh, exceeds the supply in the United States. So typically the FDA's shortage staff is going to focus on these products that are medically necessary because of their impact of public health. Uh, and I'll just pivot quickly to COVID to say that this projected demand piece has been challenging because therapy is changing or has changed so quickly from the beginning of the pandemic to where we are now. And so that has uh, been one of the constraints on supply. So I just mentioned the term medical necessity in, in the prior definition. So I just want to explain what, what that really means in terms of the agency's approach here. And really, uh, the definition is a, a product that is used to treat or prevent a serious disease or medical condition for which there is no other alternative available and adequate supply. And medical necessity is something that changes just like therapy changes. A product could be a gold standard one year. A few years later, there are other therapeutic products that come out or our understanding about a certain product changes. And so the necessity of that product changes. So the FDA's internal clinical review staff is the determining body for medical necessity. And uh, we do so when warranted uh, request uh, an assessment. And it's done at least annually in terms of uh, when a shortage is considered. So now let's go back to that impact of the notification requirement. And I, I mentioned earlier that manufacturers had to now, by law, talk to the FDA about uh, discontinuation or product availability issues. In 2011, there was an executive order passed by President Obama that uh, initiated or started this dialogue, mandating it. Prior to that, it was voluntary. And so you see this large jump on the chart to the right between 2010 and 2011, and that was secondary to this now requirement. And it was put into law in 2012, and we have been able to take uh, significant actions to prevent shortages. Uh, we also are having earlier and earlier conversations with firms um, or they call us as soon as an issue comes in and we start the dialogue on what we can do and we start our other steps to mitigate the shortages. Thankfully, with the notification requirement, the agency has been able to take some actions and prevent some shortages. This, this chart on this slide is, speaks to the number of shortages per year and we see this precipitous drop between 2011 and 2012, 2013 goes down. 2011 was particularly challenging because uh, three sterile injectable 
manufacturers in the United States had some challenges all at the same time that led to supply disruptions. And that was, as I kind of referred to as peak shortage. Our notification requirement came in that year and very quickly industry was working with us to notify us in, you know, in advance of shortage. So we were able to prevent some things. And, and also they were taking actions to make their supply chain a little bit more robust and understand the risks around their supply chain. Uh, but as you can see, it never really goes away. Peaks back up in 2017, 2018, secondary to the impact of some hurricanes, again, on sterile injectables typically. And really, uh, you'll see an uptick again in 2020. That data will be published in 2021, usually in the first quarter. We also um, have to send a report to Congress. And so some shortages can be dealt with. Some of them have economic factors and other reasons that are persistent. So what does the FDA's drug shortage staff do uh, specifically to prevent, mitigate, and resolve shortages? The first part of what the FDA uh, can do to prevent shortages is really hold manufacturers to this requirement of communication, talking to us when they anticipate uh, supply disruptions or delays and uh, or, or when they choose to make a discontinuation, they have to tell us you know, in advance. And what we cannot do, and I think what most clinicians understand, but most patients typically do not, the FDA has no legal purview to tell a company to make a drug, even if they have the capacity or history. We cannot tell a company how much of a product to make or really where to distribute it or who, who should get priority. Uh, these are not legal purviews of the FDA. So after that notification requirement comes in, what are we doing? Well, we're prioritizing products based on medical necessity because of the impact to patient care. We are looking at the risk benefit of the drug in question and, and any steps that we need to take to keep that product on the market and, and as part of that calculus. We are always looking at the risk to patient. If, if the risk to not having a product is greater than the risk to having a product with some potential concerns that can be mitigated, we're going to have to take those steps to make sure that product's available. We have to work with industry to address these problems. And we have to collaborate with them and, and solicit uh, short-term and long-term solutions. But at the end of each drug shortage situation is a manufacturer taking steps to make sure product is safe and available and really communicating to us throughout the whole process. I said earlier that prevention is really where the agency has tried to put a lot of emphasis on, on, on drug shortage actions, but not all shortages can be prevented. And, and I said also about the demand of COVID, uh, we've seen um, the supply uh, erode very quickly and it really was unanticipated for certain products to have these demand increases. And so manufacturers would come to us and say, hey, we need to increase production, so we have to add a new line or we have to um, uh, work with a, a raw material supplier to buy more product and, and we want to qualify a new raw material supplier to be getting it from multiple locations or multiple suppliers. So they're, they're, they're trying to be as nimble as possible. But even then, uh, shortfalls occur and they are uh, challenges really held by the agency and by industry. We can certainly take certain steps to the broader market and for applications that we have in-house that have yet to been approved uh, when they're in, you know, in a certain drug market. We can expedite those you know, with the, the thought that those manufacturers would, would launch into that shortage market. We also will encourage smart distribution efforts, but we have no purview there. Manufacturers typically will set up allocation processes. Uh, we can advise on that, but they, they usually do that on their own. And, and I know that also occurs at the wholesale distribution level. Okay. 
the, the FDA toolbox for shortages, starting with communication to everyone in a market. If we hear about a potential shortfall, well, certainly we're going to save all the proprietary information for internal dialogue with inside the FDA. Uh, but we'll go to the broader market. If there's a five-drug market and one of the companies is 20% of the market, tells us they're going to be out of the market for six months, um, we take that information and reach out to the other four producers and say, we anticipate a market shortfall. We think it could be anywhere from four to eight months, and we uh, think it could be as deep as uh, 20 to 30%. Are you seeing demand increases? If so, do you anticipate changing your production forecasting or adding additional lots to your forecast to meet this demand. So prompting firms to look at, you know, what's going on in their market. Many firms will come to us sometimes in advance and say, Hey, we are seeing and selling at 125% of forecast what's going on. So that that's important for us to receive as well. We will take certain steps, you know, to work with the, the company that's having the issue, you know, right. I mentioned taking certain steps to mitigate risk earlier. Well, uh, one thing we see with sterile injectables a lot of times is maybe some particulate ending up in the product. If it's a something that can be filtered out, does the manufacturer have data on the effectiveness of filtration with a certain micron filter? And, you know, after we review that data, we can permit a manufacturer, once we know the risk benefit, we can permit a manufacturer to keep those lots on the market if they provide the filter needle or provide information about using the filter needle uh, during uh, reconstitution and, and really keeping the product available when risks can be mitigated. That's a really nice example of a regulatory discretion. If we have to gain more understanding of what's going on in a facility, requiring a manufacturer to bring in a third-party testing, uh, bring in some other confidence-inspiring or confidence-gaining uh, data on, on what's going on the agency can look at. Uh, special instructions for safe use. We utilize Dear Healthcare Provider communications or we encourage industry to do so. And we post a lot of these on our shortage site when a specific action is being taken to keep certain lots uh, on the market. The next item in our toolbox is taking certain steps to look at the proposals coming from industry, whether it's you know quickly reviewing new manufacturing sites, or increasing expiry, uh, you know, that particular one's highlighted because we have a sub-site dedicated to showing which lots and which manufacturers have come to us uh, with data. You know, traditionally, something might be a 24-month expiry posted on the packaging. If they come to the agency and say, hey, we have a shortage issue, but we understand that some prop, some lots that are already in distribution uh, really are showing stability uh, at 36 months, per se. Uh, if they give us the data, we see that it, it corroborates with that. We can give them discretion to keep that product on the market and communicate to pharmacists so that they can dispense that with confidence beyond expiry. And so, again, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, show you that uh, dedicated link at the end of the slide deck. New material sources and changes in specifications are also things that come to us uh, frequently where the agency has to review these and make sure that, that we do so in a quick fashion, allowing the firms to be nimble. The second bullet here that's, that's bolded is exercising regulatory flexibility and discretion, permitting importation uh, from unapproved sources outside the country. This is really the last step or the last ditch effort to support market and ensure product availability in the United States. And we take so uh, really with great caution, and it's a finite 
uh, step for, to permit a company to bring in product from outside the country for only during the duration of the shortage. The moment the uh, approved suppliers can come back into the market, the permission to import expires. Let's put it back to COVID-19 and what the FDA has uh, really tried to do during this entire event to uh, ensure product availability. So let's start early on in January. We received notice in, in DSS about a potential impact for a small series of locations in China and, and started to look globally and see the impacts uh, of the supply chain. And as, as the disease spread, uh, we were pushing notifications and receiving notifications back from manufacturers about their supply chain, that constant evolution. We, we do that normally. Um, we look at geopolitical events. We look at national and international disasters as they affect supply chains. So this was nothing new, but the, the sheer volume and size of this was, was really historic. Collaborating with uh, other partners in HHS and other government health partners, to uh, sustain the supply and make sure that products were being brought in, working with customs. We, uh, as I mentioned earlier, posted this guidance to the coronavirus disease uh, page, the FDA large page. That's the guidance on, on notification for manufacturers. We worked to solicit and then get EUAs approved to sustain uh, market availability for products uh, when necessary. We have taken at the point of putting the slide deck together, over 300 separate actions on products, regulatory actions, be it expedites or whatnot. I mentioned the expiry extension. The hyperlink is there to that subpage where you can pull out an Excel spreadsheet and search for lots and products. We also work with hand sanitizer manufacturers, both on their supply chain and efforts to communicate uh, the product's stability beyond expiry for about, uh, over 200 lots of one of the manufacturers. We worked uh, to sustain and gather additional supply for Probofol during the pinch in March and April, and also chronic renal replacement therapies, which are a really small supply chain, uh, trying to take some steps to bring in additional product and, and uh, make sure that that critical product was available. The, the last item, the Vecuronium and Rocuronium market, there was uh, some challenges around the, the vial caps not being printed with warning neuromuscular blocking agent. And we didn't want a manufacturer to have to throw away a series of lots. If we could communicate to the using populace, the pharmacists and clinicians that were going to be getting this product shipped to them in a manner that didn't have that critical warning on the valve cap. So we worked with ISMP and had a warning put into the shipping packaging for these series of lots and has served to sustain the, those markets that were critical. So there's definitely a lot going on currently, and this is just kind of a summary, but we are doing things across the market and, and, and working with uh, collaborators inside and outside of federal government. So now a case study, and, and I think uh, let's, let's start with these neuromuscular blocking agents and the ventilation maintenance agents. And, and, and again, these are sterile injectables. Historically, that's a market where shortage uh, is frequent. Uh, in the case of these products, many of them have at least five manufacturers in the market currently distributing for each of these, and, and some of them have significant supplies. Uh, you know, one or two manufacturers maybe carry the bulk of the market, 70, 80%. Um, and and the, many times 
these manufacturers are producing the same products and having to pick between, okay, I, I can make more of this product, but then that means I make less of this product. And so that's a quandary for them as well. Why did the shortage occur? Well, these products were um, driven, the demand was driven, this huge demand was driven by the need to put people on ventilation. Initially, early on, that was okay. We have a patient failing and the pulmonary challenges are such that we need to get them onto a vent and we need to maintain them. And so when they were put on those ventilators and they were kept on longer, the, the, the stretch for the supply that traditionally month to month in a non-COVID timeframe that it was forecasted for was nowhere near what was needed. And so very quickly, the agency had to take some actions to increase those markets. And, and the, the delays uh, secondary to COVID really are also important to say, you know, manufacturers um, might have had to, in many cases, instead of having three shifts run, pull down to two shifts because they didn't have enough people or they didn't have enough supplies. So that also impacted. Uh, early on, there were some challenges secondary to the movement of goods internationally. That has thankfully ceased. It's something that we're watching. We have talked to the State Department and other organizations internationally. Again, we benefit from having FDA offices in critical countries for drug supply. And so we're able to utilize long-built communication channels with industry, pharmaceutical industry globally, also beneficial. But, but that is a nice example of, of how COVID affected a particular series of patients and a particular series of products. So how do we continue to be effective in a COVID and a non-COVID timeframe afterwards? This collaboration and partnership with healthcare providers and pharmaceutical industry to both identify when there's a, a supply chain issue and, and then get to the solutions. Working with industry to gather these short-term and long-term plans, gathering information on supply and when they plan on producing. These things are are all critically important to our continued success. I hope at this point you understand the importance of uh, reaching out to the FDA when you have a supply chain issue. So we'll spend the next slide talking about how to report a shortage. A few items on this page. The first top left corner, the drug shortage list, as we call it, or the list of products in an access database format, we have the hyperlink should work. And that's the page where we list item by item. You can search alphabetically, or if you switch the tabs along the top of the page, you can search by therapeutic category. Um, I talked about reporting shortages, and so the easiest way to do that is an email to drugshortages at fda.hhs.gov. For many folks, the mobile app might be a, a nice tool for you. You can report a shortage through the mobile app as well as look at what the uh, current shortage postings are. And uh, I will say that that is available in both the App Store and the Android um, App Store as well, so both Apple and Android. Finally, a few key takeaways. Drug shortage prevention is a collaborative effort with pharmaceutical industry, FDA, and healthcare providers, all playing a critical role. Uh, it's important to educate our fellow colleagues and certainly patients that the FDA cannot direct a firm to make more product 
sell to a certain customer, charge a certain price. These are not within the FDA's purview. This is all within um, industry's position alone to make those decisions. We certainly try to encourage them to get into mar markets, but that is not FDA purview. Finally, solutions to drug shortages require investment, innovation, and tenacity, and that's for industry, for FDA, and healthcare providers. Thank you for taking the time to listen to my talk. We're now going to pivot over to Dr. Heather Orth as she does the second part of COVID-19 and other disasters. Thank you so much for listening and joining us today for this special edition podcast on COVID-19. Be sure to follow us at ASHP Official wherever you listen to your podcasts and be sure to check out our COVID-19 Resource Center at ashp.org backslash COVID-19 for the most up-to-date developments on COVID-19. Take care and thank you for all you do. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.